Good evening, everyone. We'll let uh, we'll let everyone pile into the. Into the this is going to be fun. I mean, look at the. You guys are. It's perfect. The background there. You got the yellow Camaro. You got Sol Regen. We got we got the the man Rick Haney. We've got the man Lance Gunderson. And by the way, Lance, I was looking through some old Ward Lab uh, Haney tests, and they were approved by Lance Gunderson. Huh. So, no kidding. Weird. Yeah. 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 I, I approved a few of those back in the day. I, For those I reasons? imagine you've approved a few thousand. Yeah. yeah. Well, hey, everybody, let's get, let's get uh, like we always do here, giddy up, let's go. Man, we are in for a treat tonight. We have Rick Haney, the, the guy who invented the soil, the Haney soil health test. We have Lance Gunderson, who is owner of Regen Ag Lab, the largest Regen lab in the United States. Right there it is on Rick's shirt. Uh, guys, it is awesome to have you here tonight. Uh, somebody go first. Tell me what is on your mind right now. Well, <clears throat> my 49 Chevy is in the it had to go to the doctor and turns out it has a transmission problem. So I'm a little distraught about that because I'm not a transmission, automatic transmission mechanics, but so here we are, we're stuck with this Camaro now. So now that's, yeah. you went from a 49 to a 2010. Yeah. So good memory. Yeah. That's great. Lance, yeah, what's you see us doing stuff like this because there's gnats flying everywhere. So yeah. And folks were, I'm in Indiana, and these two these two great gentlemen are live from Texas, uh, Salado. So thanks, and Lance has has driven all day and busted his butt to get down to be with Rick live tonight. So Lance, thank you so much for doing this live. Appreciate it. What's on your mind, Lance? Uh, other than there's too many people on the interstate in Texas. <laughs> um, yeah, I yeah. tell you, there there there's a lot on my mind. Uh, Let's hear it. Well, I mean, in a nutshell, I tell you, I, I, Rick and I have talked about this. I mean, I remember 10 years ago, we were, we were begging people, right, Rick? I mean, we're begging people to pay attention. Yeah. And now it is, it's here. You know, I mean, we're seeing it. The, the wave is starting to crest, um, which is really exciting. Um, but, you know, the, I guess the thing I see all the time is everywhere you look, everybody now is suddenly a self-proclaimed you know expert in soil health regenerative ag uh there's stuff all over linkedin companies that have been around for five minutes companies that haven't been around or have been around for 30 years now everybody's involved and and uh i guess that's a wonderful thing when nobody's actually an expert in regenerative ag including us you everybody else it's pretty easy to stick your flag in the ground and call yourself an expert but uh, it, it's irritating, but I'm, I'm also yeah. excited about where it's going and the hope that we have now in ag, the momentum that we've got. So, yeah, you know, I still get discouraged driving down here and seeing too much of the things that we're going to talk about trying to get away from. But I'm also, if you pay attention and look through that, you're seeing a lot of really good things happening too. Yeah. You know, around here at home, I drive drive out to the, I've got about a 15 minute drive to get to the main farm every day and I can go two different ways. And it's incredible. 
the amount of tillage that's taking place. When you have a, a fall with nice weather, no rain delays, everything gets worked. And I mean, the fields are worked to the point you could plant corn in them tomorrow. They're that fine. I, I don't know what these fields are gonna do when the winds pick up and there's no cover and they're just gonna blow away. And I, it's just, it's very sad that, that it has to continue to happen like that. So I'm no, with it, you. It, it's actually quite mind boggling that we have the understanding now to, to not do some of the things we're doing. We have overwhelming evidence. Yeah. You don't have to have evidence, even common sense or what we like to call uncommon sense now, apparently. Yeah. It's like if you keep the ground covered, it stays, the moisture stays, the microbial activity stays. I mean, it's on and on and on. And that's just, you don't have to have a PhD to understand that. You don't have to, you know, you have to have some sort of sense of intelligence there. And that's useful. Common but, sense. Yeah. So, and, and, and yet it's an uphill battle. I know. And that, that's surprising. Uh, if you were to tell, and I've used this many times, it's like the Saudis, right? They recently cut production for oil, right? Why? Because they want the price to go up. So, but what, what are we going to do in the farming system? We're going to, overproduce and drive the price down so come on yeah. now we have some very simple mechanisms that we can use to help farmers make money better and you know why are we not using those it's yeah I, I know. It, it it all seems backwards doesn't it yep yeah um well what you know before we go into the hate before we go into the the deep dive here what uh what are you guys working on in the lab right now that you can that you can bring us in on? I mean, what new te uh, testing or new ideas of relationships? What are you working on right now? Um, yeah, that's a great question, Rick. So, as uh, I, I think there was an announcement here maybe a year ago that we were working on a partnership with biomakers. Yep. Um, biomakers, for those of you who are not familiar, they're a metagenomics uh, company. Um, they're doing soil microbial community analysis, looking at, at, at genomics of the soil, the mass genomic extraction. Mm -hmm. And what's been really interesting is that we've been, for the last couple of years, running Haney test and genomics testing side by side uh, on the same samples. Now, they're running the genomic piece and we're running the Haney test. Um, but what we started to see was, you know, sometimes we have soil test results where we look at a, for example, we look at a phosphorus number and, and we say, okay, based on conventional agronomy, we should not see phosphorus deficiency in the crop. But yet here we are and we see it. And then it's even verified through plant sap analysis or plant tissue analysis. And then on the other hand, we have areas where we say, well, the phosphorus is low, we should see deficiency and we don't. Yeah. Right. So where is this, where's this disconnect? And it all boils down to those nutrient transport pathways, which are then controlled and regulated by the microbes. Yeah. So yeah. what was really interesting is we started to see all these correlations and causations uh, between the fertility and soil health pieces on the Haney test and now this metagenomics, and it actually lit, uh, put light bulbs off on both ways. That's brilliant, that's brilliant. And, and you're gonna see, so, we just signed, and I say just signed, um, Monday. Uh, we signed an agreement with biomakers. Um, our goal now is that as of March 1st, and I say our goal, we all know how hard the world is right now, but 
our goal is on March 1st, we will now be running that test at Regan Ag Lab. Um, wow. Processing the samples. They will still be using their technology, their reporting, um, very much supported on their end. But our goal here is to be able to cut down on that turnaround time dramatically uh, yeah. by putting this in a commercial lab. Um, so that's a big step for us. Um, and, and yeah, that's the main one that we're looking at right now. Um, Rick has been working on a rapid water holding capacity test. Uh, water holding capacity has been an overwhelmingly uh, popular test this last year. It's a two week method. It's a very long method. So um, we're just implementing that and putting it through the, the testing stages. Um, so not, not really new, but I guess a twist on something to be able yeah. to make this a little faster, uh, a little cheaper. Um, all of those things have a better option out there. So those yeah. are really the big things we're working on now. So let me go, but let's go to the biomakers real quick. So are these folks identifying what species of or microorganisms there are, or are they giving you a count of what is there, that, but they don't know what they're called? Both. Both. Um, well, and let me say that on their report itself, you will not see a list of species because too many. there's too many. Yeah. And, and number one, if, if we give you this big, long list of Latin species names, does anybody really know what those are? Or and care. more importantly, what they're doing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so that information is there. If you want it, you can ask for it. Okay. But what they're what they're doing is identifying all these species and then they're lumping them together similar to a PLFA test. Okay. However, they're able to identify a lot of different functional groups, disease organisms, plant growth promoting organisms, hormone production, um, nutrient transport and uptake pathways, uh, and also immobilization pathways. So they reshuffle all those species into all these different groups and present that on like a six page report. The fun yeah. part about that to me, Rick, is that, for example, what we've seen is that you do a Haney test or, or whatever, and you get a, uh, a low phosphate, right? Let's say 10 part per million. Yeah. Like, Oh my God, I got to add phosphate. Well, you, you put the genomics stuff with it. And it's like, wait a minute, that pathway is open. That means the plant is actively taking it up, and that's why it's low. It's not low because it's stored. It's okay. The system's up. And we've also seen soils with high phosphate closed pathways. It's like, uh oh. Now it's like, well, we should, we don't need to put any fertilizer out right here. We got plenty of phosphate fertilizer, you know, plenty of phosphate. But the problem is it's not cycling. Yeah. So now this is a whole new ball game. If we if we can see okay. into that, you can see inside that. Yeah, so this gets me though to what I was, I know it's going to be a long list of what's there, but if we know what's there, then can we say, ah, you're missing this sector of biology, that's why that pathway is closed. So yes, we then yes. need to introduce that biology to open that yes. pathway, is that correct? Yes, correct. Okay. Now, the, the, the lab itself is not going to be making, quote unquote, you know, recommendations for certain products, but we're going to help you identify the gaps. Yeah, this but, then, is awesome. but then you can go out and, and select either certain products or certain practices or combination of the two, which is the right way to do it. Yeah. And then you can actually strive to increase that focus of organisms, right? Yeah. Rather than, I mean, we all know how many, how many biological products that are out there. 
I bet you there's a hundred more now than there was when I started driving here this morning. So, you know, the point is, is that how do you know as a producer other than just trial and error? And I'll be real honest. I've, I've never seen a single biological product never work, but I've yet to see a biological product work everywhere in every situation. And so this should help target down on some of those things. And that's what we're working towards. All right. Are you guys, are you guys also going to start thinking about mapping certain scenarios based on, on, on context of where this soil is coming from? I mean, Oklahoma soil is going to be, be different than, than Iowa soil. Correct. Yeah. 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 I mean, it should be right. They're they're living organisms in two totally different environments. Right. Yeah. Now, now, I mean, Look, I know we're going to cover the Haney test, so but I'll, I'll just tell you kind of where we're trying to get with this, right? Yeah. Early on, you know, hey, you run a you run a hundred of these a week. I get a few phone calls. Fine. Um, I had sixty-two phone calls yesterday. Uh, it's getting to the point, you know, where obviously we've understood this. We need to provide better interpretation tools. Yeah, and they, it needs to be better than just being able to call me and ask me questions or Rick. Um, but we needed a fairly large data set, which we now have, and so now we can start building out some software solutions that we can provide different base level interpretations, but then allow the producers to add the context. Yeah, right. They get to add the context, and then that will shift because one of the biggest problems i've always had with soil test reports is that you've got this table for phosphorus and it just says from here to here is very low here to here is low here to you know yeah well where's the context because the the even with traditional agronomy the phosphorus content of the soil required to produce 300 bushel corn in illinois is very different than producing 80 bushel corn in eastern colorado yeah so you can't just rank something high or low without that context. And right, so that's, but, but we can't manually apply that context to every single situation uh, and have all those phone calls to do it, but we want to provide that. So that's where we're yeah. trying to get to. We're working on the backbones of it. Mostly a lot of Rick's knowledge. Uh, we've got the software guys to do it. Make yeah. that an open source platform for people that and and that's that's kind of why we're doing this this evening because I really I, I don't think people fully understand and I don't the whole Haney test and what each one of those those boxes mean and that's what we're going to get to here in just a little bit. Um, okay, we've got we've got a couple. Of, this first thing is a comment. Um, I asked you a question earlier, Lance and uh, Ludmila. Ludmila's from Ukraine, by the way. Um, she says, "Do you mean meta?" transcriptomics when you talk about pathway analysis that's a mouthful um yeah. i like it yeah yeah um i'm not a hundred percent sure exactly what they call it but i can walk through a little bit of the process so the dna is extracted from the soil and it's bulk dna so we're not isolating any different organisms there but then we're using certain DNA primers, which are just short segments to match up to sequences on that genome. Yeah. yeah. And then we're separating the bacterial genome from the fungal genome. 
And then those are amplified. Those sequences are amplified and purified. And then they're sequenced eventually. And then those sequences are what they call blasted against a database. And that database is what's created by biomakers um, where they actually grow organisms in isolation, sequence the DNA to put into that database. So then you blast that against there and it comes back with this list. Okay. Um, so it's, the neat thing about it is, is that it includes all of the organisms in the soil. And if they're in the database, it will name those to the species level. Okay. So then our, okay, I want to interrupt you for just a second here. So if something comes up that has no identification, is it, does someone trying to name it at that point so that it can then be future identified? That database is constantly being upgraded. Yes. Okay. And, and there, and I'm not going to quote a number, but I know that there has been tens of millions of dollars invested just in the database development. And it's taken years. And that's true of all those genomics companies. That's where most of that money's gone. And, and honestly, seven years ago, I had people talk to me about metagenomics and I said, it's not there yet. You know, the, the, the database was here and now we've got this. And yes, it will continue to grow. And that's what makes that that's what makes the analysis powerful right. in itself. When we started coupling it with other measurements, uh, that's where it really got powerful. Yeah. I mean, it's no different than, than, you, than you, Rick, with your, your set when you started the Haney test. It was very small, but now you've got a huge, huge database to, to, to now really bring your data down to pretty finite, exact type recommendations now. Yeah, and I, and I think that going forward that any of these species should be named uh, Haney one, two, three, four, and so on. Okay. I, I like that. Could you slip a Rick in there somewhere? Maybe for yeah. you or yeah. me? Yeah. So they get us confused. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. We've got a question here from Joe. Are genomics dependent on soil type? How many different ways are the genomics changed or introduced? Yes, yeah, so it is dependent on soil type, just like everything else. So, uh, you know, organic matter is going to have a dependency on some soil type and water infiltration, et cetera. Within the database, so as, so as part of this test, they require um, a lat long for the sample. So they have that type of information then from the lat long. They know the soil type. They also require the crop. Yeah. Um, and that crop is for part of the interpretation. The lat long is for part of the interpretation. Um, yeah. And then the different genomics, how are they introduced? Well, if they're nat they're natural, I mean, um, so, but they can be introduced through all of the biological products. Um, you can also do a lot of things within the system, right? Manure application, compost application, livestock integration, uh, diversity and cropping is a big one. And so what that does is it starts to build up these populations of other organisms. And that's how those quote unquote genetics get introduced into the herd, if you will, yeah. or into the community. Yeah. See, I, I just, I'm really, I'm really focusing in on epigenetics, which I think is what we're talking about here with this microbial community of adapting to the system that you now have in place, wherever you are in the world. 
I truly think that. So, I mean, I've got two or I've got two Johnson reactors going now with products from my farm in that reactor, and we plan on building more. And then what we're going to do, I hope, is take that biology and add it to maybe some other biology that a biomakers would say we might be lacking, and combine those two together. That's the way I think we go. Well, Rick, let me ask you this question: Is this more fun than what you were doing twenty years ago? Oh, it's fun. Oh, yeah. This is fun, and, and, and this is profitable, too. Actually interesting, isn't it? It's interesting. I enjoy going to work every day. I enjoy the challenge. Um, and, man, you guys, you guys are knocking it out. I mean, you've got, you've got this focus on – because, see, you've, you've always got to figure out ways to try to get the next question answered before it gets asked. And that's, that's what I think you're doing. Yeah. And, and this will be a once this really gets going, what Lance is talking about, it's going to be a game changer. It, it's going to yeah. be a game. Changer. And people I mean, there people still have trouble with the Haney test. Right. That, which is, is bizarre to me. But anyway, uh, wait until this comes along. Then, now what happens? Yep. Yeah. There'll be yeah. those that get it using that uncommon sense. Yeah. And it'll be all right. We'll we'll keep moving forward with it. Oh, yeah. It's it's going to be great. Um, Jeremy, good evening. Quick question. I've used Brookside Labs for years. This year, I sent some samples to Ward Labs. I've always had magnesium saturation rates of 18 to 20, but Ward Lab numbers are running about 13 to 14. Have you seen the same thing? Oh, I got to be a little careful here, Jeremy. Um, <laughs> I mean, I was at Ward for 17 years. I haven't been there since 2019, the end of 2019. Um, I think, I think as anybody can tell you, including myself, uh, one of the issues with soil testing is that it seems like we never get the same thing at other labs, right? Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that to discredit anybody, um, that's just the way it is. There, it's there is so many moving parts. Well, um, it's the methodology, by and large. So, one one lab uses malic three for extract. Another lab uses H three A Haney yeah. test. Somebody uses Bray. Those are. And here's the thing that pisses me off, Rick. Everybody acts like, well, the Haney test extract is no good. Well, really, prove yeah. to me malic three is good or Bray's good or whatever's good. Prove right. that to me, for starters. Yeah. Is that a natural system? No. Are we is that following nature? No. So defend that. Right. So that the, my point is, if we're not doing it Nate, the way it's happening in the field, see what are we looking at? Right. Fiction well, let, is what I would call that. Fiction. Let's just let's start right there, guys. Explain to the audience what H3A extract means. The the acids that are you explain what this means. The old methodology of soil testing. Explain that. I'm going to let Rick explain that, but I'm going to kick off with this really fast to just reiterate what he was saying. So, Jeremy, to your question, when you send a soil sample to a lab, they're going to expose it to some kind of solution, right? Now, whether that's water, ammonium acetate, malic 3, DTPA, Bray 1, all these different solutions. Now, the problem is, is that all of those solutions have varying strengths or abilities to pull things out and just because it has more strength to pull out calcium doesn't mean it necessarily has the same strength to pull out magnesium 
And so then when you do a percent base saturation, those numbers shift, right? If it was, if all of them were twice as much, that's easy. The percentages don't change. So the first question I would have, because I, and I will say this, when I was at Ward, Ward Laboratories was a very big proponent of ammonium acetate for the cations. When you start to get further east, the most common extract is malic three. Now, I'm not saying that's what Brookside's using, but that would be where I would start. Compare those, because if you're calculating base saturation using those two different extracts, you're going to get different numbers. Yeah. So now why, yeah. now I'll, I'll pass it on to Rick here, why H3A and not just keep using all the same extracts that have been around for 70 years? Yeah. Okay, yeah. That, that's really, so, so H3A, is not heavily buffered. And, and a lot of people say, well, that's a knock on it, right? It's not heavily buffered. And what that means, it's not very strong. It's a weak acid, right? So that's bad somehow. Nature uses weak acids. That's yeah. how nature works. So if you have a weak acid, you're gonna get out a little bit less, right? So just because it's a weak acid doesn't mean, oh, it's no good. So the soil is the buffer, not the extractant which is yeah. what makes me so mad because when people say, oh, that's a weak acid, that doesn't work. You have a fundamental misunderstanding of how soil works. The pH of the soil is the driver, should be the driver of what gets extracted, not the extracted itself. Yeah. And so what, that, what was eye-opening for me when I started using the plant naturally occurring organic acids was that how easily I could move how much we could extract nutrient-wise by by adjusting the ph yeah well but so it's like wait wait a minute why if we make this a more a, a weak just stick with the weak acid what you know what what happens in nature and let the soil ph dictate what's coming out because that's what plants find themselves growing in is that soil ph you can't take a ph 8 soil and drive it to ph 4 like you do with a mazel 3 and call that result accurate yeah. that's ridiculous Whereas uh, H3A will extract that same soil at 7.6, 7.7, seven, seven, right? So H3A moves with the pH of the soil. The rest of them don't. They drive them somewhere. Olsen, for example, is a popular phosphate. Done in, and that's a very, that's modern technology. I think that was 1954 when Olsen came up. Because nothing's changed since 1954. Jeez. But Olsen drives everything to 8.5. So if you've got a pH 6 soil and you're going to use an Olsen on it, or, you know, they say, well, it's developed for calcareous soils, it's still driving everything to 8.5. What soil do you know grows anything at 8.5? Nothing. These are the fundamental questions that struck me in graduate school. It's like you're looking at this data and these and all this research and going, what? what? Yeah. So you all don't really believe in nature and how nature does things. So you're going to fight against it and say, well, our way is the right way. You know, and it, you know that, that, it never made any sense to me. So, well, I'm glad it didn't because then we now have the Haney test as a result of that. So, and see, this is what people don't understand. All of these buffers that you mentioned are, are caustic and high, yep. you know, they're just destroying the soil and they're treating the soil as if it's not a living organism where the H3 extract is going to be closer to that <laughs> living organism. And here's the other fun part. So all these researchers that and all these scientists that say, oh, well, H3A sucks and it's a weak acid and, you know, Malik's better, Bray and blah, blah, blah. They're not paying the fertilizer bill, are they? No. 
<laughs> I've never had one of those folks pay my, any of my bills. So that, that always upset me because, and, and the reason I developed that test was because of the farmers that I knew, and I wanted to try to help them and, and do it from nature's perspective. Because yeah. all my academic, arrogant, asshole friends were just acting like, whoa, no, you got to do it this way. It's like, are you paying the fertilizer deal, Bill? Are you? Yeah. Because I will guarantee you, if soil testing evolved into, you know, we're going to guarantee you that these results are right, these fertilizer recommendations are right, and if not, we'll pay the difference. Now we're going to see something change, aren't we? Yeah. When money gets involved, things get a little different. Yeah. My perspective was be on the side of the farmer, try to help them see how nature works and how this works in, you know, in your field, not in the lab. Mm -hmm. And that, that was, that's what drove me forward. Now that may be naive or stupid or whatever everybody wants to call it. I don't really care, but no. you know, if we're not mimicking nature in the lab, I don't know what the numbers we get back mean. Right. And see, that's one thing I've, I've always been so, so proud of you, Rick, is the fact that you always were looking out for the farmer's best interest here, not a chemical company or a fertilizer company. You're looking out for the person who's paying the bills. And I've always respected that with the Haney test. Well, so, I'm not out there uh, farming and taking the risk and borrowing, you know, I've seen, you know, farmers I work for, I watched them borrow a million dollars a year on something they would invest it in that could die. Yeah. Well, how, how many of the rest of us have to deal with that? Yeah. I don't really know many. So, so why are we not working our ass off to try to help the farmers be more, this is, this, this never made any sense to me. And it's egotism is what it is. It's arrogance yeah. and egotism. Yeah. Because, oh, I'm a big scientist and you got to do what I say. That's, that's bullshit. Yeah. No, you're, you're exactly. I, see, I don't work for USDA anymore. I work for him. So now I can say this kind of stuff. It's really fun. But this is not necessarily his opinion, folks, out there. This is not necessarily his This is Rick Unplugged. Go. I, it is. There's a reason why uh, I wanted to work with Rick, uh, because it is my opinion. Um, so I'll go ahead and go on the record as saying that. And this is what really stuck out for me, is that, look, very simply, there's three main problems with soil testing in, in the current paradigm. Number one, it doesn't rain malic three <laughs> or ammonium acetate or DTPA. bray or DTPA, right? It rains water. And that water then mixes with things in the soil, minerals, and it also mixes with the acids that are being produced by the plant. Weird. And it's the combination of those acids and the water then that dictate how soluble some of those minerals are. Now, nitrate is soluble. Pure water, it's soluble. But phosphorus and zinc and manganese and magnesium. So that is the first issue. Number two, I find it very funny that if you go to the state of Wisconsin, the extract that is that works in Wisconsin is Bray One or weak Bray. But as soon as you cross this arbitrary border that we drew between Wisconsin and all the other states, that extract no longer works and it's Malik Three. But as soon as you cross into Georgia, it's Malik One, which is even older, of course, than Malik Three. And as soon as you cross west of uh, where I'm at in Nebraska, it's Olson Phosphorus because they're applying general concepts to these regions. So that to me would be like saying, well, 
I live in Florida, so we're going to measure your blood pressure this way. Oh, but you traveled to Minnesota. Well, now blood pressure is not important, but if, okay, we'll measure it, but we're going to measure it this way yeah. and interpret it all a different way. It's like, no, soil has inherent principles that are true. And I don't care where you are, just like people have inherent health principles, no matter where you are. So that's the second problem. The third issue um, is that in my opinion, soil testing was designed. This is not the fault of, of Malik and Olson and Bray when they came up with this. The, the testing was designed to try to show farmers and ranchers where the gaps were, right? And then fertilizer was to be sold as gap insurance. Yeah. So that's the goal originally, but then somewhere along the lines, the fertilizer companies and the, and the dealers used soil testing as a tool, as a scare tactic, essentially, to tell you, you don't have anything in your soil. Look, it says right here, you don't have anything. And so you have to buy it all from me. Yeah. you got to buy it all from me. If you don't, you'll fail. You'll go broke. Your crops are done. So it, it turned into, and, and we see that sometimes, you know, it's, they're, they're selling you the gap insurance at this heightened fear rate. And it's going, well, how big is this gap really? Well, if you only look at nitrate in your soil as a source of nitrogen, you can make the gap really big. But if you start looking at all those nitrogen bank accounts here, 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 and you realize, wait, how do I utilize some of this? Yeah. You get the biology going and you start cycling it. And now your gap goes from here to here. And so the idea is not to tell a farmer, never put on fertilizer, never use any nutrient input. No, it's, but what's your real gap? And, and that's where the money savings come in because selling somebody something they don't truly need is kind of where soil testing went. Sure. Yeah. And that, that goes to Rick's test because Every test that I've ever seen of the Haney test, there's always more available nutrients than there are from these other tests you're referring to, because you're taking in the mineralization and whatever biology is taking place. And, and, and that, I mean, what is there, thousands of pounds of phosphorus below our feet? We just got to, we just got to get to it. Right. So, all right, uh, Joe has got a, a question here, then I assume cover crops help with genomics generation and then do different types of cover crops react differently and can be prescribed based on to, uh, test results? Uh, the answer is yes to both of those. Um, <laughs> diversity. So the biggest influencer of the microbial community in your soil is the plant community growing on that soil. Yeah. That is by by and large the biggest influencer above anything else. Yeah. Uh, my my advisor, uh, PhD advisor at the University of Nebraska Lincoln, Dr. Ray Driver, uh, she has been doing PLFA work for thirty years, and and that's who I worked with uh, to do some of my PLFA work along with Dr. Jill Clapperton. Um, the the point is is that they would take twenty year continuous wheat in Western Nebraska and change that to corn. The only thing you change is you went from a cool season grass to a warm season grass and the microbial community would shift overnight within a growing season. Wow. But, but that community is a one-sided shift. 
because it's shifting from a monoculture to a monoculture. And so you're, you're just, you're shifting it. Yes. But it's, you're still dealing with a community that yeah. deals well with corn. So cover crops, especially diversity in cover crops shifts that community dramatically. Then the second part of your question is, can you start to prescribe cover crops in certain situations, both for, yes, the, the simple answer is yes, and for multiple different goals or reasons. You want to graze them, you might select some of your species for grazing. If you're missing gaps in the biology, um, or you want to open up phosphorus transport pathway, for example, buckwheat. Buckwheat is a great one to help solubilize phosphorus, but it's not the buckwheat itself that is solely responsible for that process. Buckwheat provides the right root exudates to support the right organisms that produce the phosphatase enzymes to yeah. mobilize phosphorus. Yeah, the plants farm the microbes. Yep. Yeah. That's why they're important. Right. Yeah. And that, that um, and you know, no, it's almost the... as if it's almost as if biology begets biology. What a strange concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, you, another, you, Rick, you just make me think sometimes. I, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, yeah, I totally lost my thought. Let, let's, let's. Let, Lou Mila's got a got a question here. So, how does PLFA correlate or not with biomakers for metagenomics analysis? If you have enough data on it already. A good question. So biomakers is basically PLFA on steroids. Okay. So the, the limitation with PLFA is that we're not able to identify species. We're not able to get down to that level. And if you can't get to species, you can't identify the functions of the individuals that are part of that community. Yeah. Yeah. So we can still look at indicators, you know, fungi to bacteria ratios, uh, or do we have protozoans there? And we can make some inferences, right? If we have protozoans, we must have decent soil structure. We've got some nutrient cycling happening. But Biomakers takes all of that and just puts a big magnifying glass on all of those categories and dives way deep into them. And so I get asked this, this is usually the follow-up question is, well, then which one should I run? you know, which one should I look at? And I say, well, it really depends on your level of interest. If you're, if you're kind of in a cruising state, in other words, you know, you've gotten to a point where things are humming. Remember, you have this ability to see and hear. And while every single scientist out there that is tied to some organization or university will tell you that your observations don't mean anything, if you can't, replicate it six years in a row on triple randomized block design studies, I will tell them all good science starts with good observation. If you understand the scientific method, step one is observation. If you don't believe the observation, then why are we trying to do the science? Yeah. So use that observation. My point there is that do you need to run a bee crop or biomakers test if you're seeing all these wonderful things happen? No. But if you're really trying to diagnose a, a problem and you really need the details about something, yeah. it's money well spent. Yeah. And speaking yeah. of money, here's something that I came up with the other day. It's like you know, people are like, well, the soil test, I don't want to give 50 bucks for a soil test or 150 bucks for a soil test or whatever. All right. 
I want to give 10. It's like, have you ever noticed that quality and price seem to go together? Also, I would like to implement a new calculation that we call the fertilizer cost of soil testing cost. Yeah. I'm going to spend on fertilizer versus your soil testing. I mean, yeah. come on. Well, Why did I say that? I just had to say that. Well, that, hey, Rick, that means my, that means Lance's uh, should be charging me nothing because I don't buy any inputs, right? That's, a, see, that's, now you're thinking. Now you're yeah. trying, now the wheels are turning. Yeah, yeah. So no more inputs. So lab results are free. Got it. Okay. That just, right. well, yeah, I can do that. That just means that I'm going to pass on the bill from the bank to you since you have all this extra money you're not spending on it. See, inputs. that's why we work for him, right? Right there. It's like, there you wow. Go. You're coming in there and no, I mean, but but to Rick's point, we've had this conversation a lot and say, look, what do we got now? 150,000 plus. I mean, but between the two of us, we've we've got over 150,000 Haney tests on average, Hmm. on average, on a six inch sample, 18.9 pounds of additional nitrogen credit per acre. Okay, that's huge. That's it. So you go out and run a $50 soil test. I don't care if it costs you an extra $50 on top of that to get it pulled and get it shipped. Four acres. You're in it for two and a half bucks a sample. Tell me what the price is right now for a pound of nitrogen. Oh, it's probably about a dollar. You know, even at, yeah. So if you decide to if you decide to cut back three pounds, three pounds, you've paid for your entire soil test. Yeah. Name me another name me another soil right. test that, that offers that, or another product in the industrial ag community that gives you that kind of value. Exactly. I okay. I need you. You guys need to put another box on your report and show this fertilizer to uh, soil test relationship on there. Okay. Well, we'll have, but here's the problem with that. We'll have to have the farmers give us that input. Yeah. 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 But but they could do it themselves. I, I mean, you could you know just That's all true. we wanted to do is think about what what the value you're getting for the product. Exactly. A little bit. Exactly. Uh, so Lude Myler goes on to say, for example, does the fungi to bacteria ratio you infer from PLFA correlate with the one you see in genomics analysis as you'd expect it to? It so the answer is is it does, um, but there is one caveat. So for PLFA, which stands for phospholipid fatty acids, bacteria have proportionately more fatty acids, phospholipids than fungi do. So what I mean by that is if we had a pound of bacteria and a pound of fungi sitting here, because this is done by mass, that if we extracted all the fatty acids from them, automatically it's going to look like if you just compare the two numbers, it's going to look like you have about four times as much bacteria as you do uh, fungi. So that's why on our PLFA report, when we say a ratio of 0.25 to one, which means four times more bacteria than fungi, that is in the above average category. Because when you start to look at literature and they talk about this magical one-to-one ratio between fungi and bacteria, you won't get that running PLFA. Because again, PLFA favors the bacteria. So we've skewed that or, or scaled that that result. And honestly, I, I used to factor in a factor of four and show the ratio 
But then some really smart people would call me and say, you don't know how to do division because when I take the bacteria divided by the, or fungi divided by the bacteria, I don't get this number. <laughs> so we, we stopped doing that. Yeah. With genomics though, it's completely different. With genomics is different because you've got a set amount of DNA and a bacteria and a set amount of DNA and a fungi. And so that is what you're going to end up with. It, it's more balanced. So the ratio may look different, but if you know that little piece about PLFA, you can make that that quick, just look at it and go, oh, it's 0.2. That's almost, you know, 0.8 or, or 1 to 8 or 0.8, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Well, what you guys are doing, going to team up with those folks is, is just going to be huge because this is probably – now you're talking about, you were talking earlier about fertilizer was used to fill the gap. Now you're getting down to the biology of what we got to do to fill the gap. And that's, I think, where I'm at because I think I've got the biology there. I just can't get them all turned on that I need turned on at the right time. And, and I think with the addition, and I've been talking a lot about this, um, you need a plan of your, your, you know, your systematic approach of regenerative, but in that needs to be a systematic biology plan as well. And I don't think we look at that good enough. You've got to find reputable sources for this biology. And I know you guys aren't going to attach your names to any companies because you, you probably don't want to do that. Well, but, 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 by, but Rick, by and large, it's going to be the identifying the plants. Yeah. That help you the most. Yeah, I mean, biology is great. It's, if we can add biology, that's great. But yeah, in the long run, it's going to. I used to have these companies call me when I was at USDA saying, "Well, I got this biological product," and I'm like, "Well, that's great." If they don't have any food, they're not going to do well. Yeah, right. That's a very simple thing to say, but it's also a very true thing to say. Yeah. So, it's the plants that if the same cover crop mix is not going to work here as it is at your place. Right. For sure. Right. Once we identify those plant mixtures that make things rock, then the biology can come on or the biologicals might help. But I mean, that it's, it's going to be a systems approach. It's not going to be a one, right. it's not going to be a golden bullet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, you know, I still think we're going to sit down one day and we're going to, we're going to go through the, the history of the farm we're going to go through what what three weeds are you trying to to wrestle with right now? What's your cash crop going to be? You need to plant these eight species right here, and it's going to create that environment that those weeds are not going to want to germinate in. I think that's where we're going to get to. That, well, that here, and here's some of the fun stuff that you run into. So, I had this 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 guy that, that had this giant had this uh, like one acre patch of ragweed. It was solid ragweed, six foot tall ragweed, right? So he did the little deal where he pulled the, the ragweed, right? Mm -hmm. And shook the dirt off in the roots and had a bulk sample. So he had a composite of that composite bulk sample. His soil loves ragweed, as it turns out. Yeah. When you look at the results, which makes perfect sense. But what that's telling us is that what ragweed is giving that soil is what that soil wants. Now, right. does it have to be ragweed to do that? No. No. But when we get into this genomic stuff, now we can maybe start to identify yeah. more precisely what they, a given soil is telling us. And, and again, that's that whole nature, let nature talk to us, and let's not just decide beforehand that the evidence is it. Yeah, 
Okay, I've got a question from Deanna. How you doing this evening, Deanna? Another faithful listener on the podcast. So, Rick, this this is me, Rick, not you. Since you don't apply amendments, what do you use the soil test data for? How does the soil test influence your management decisions? Good question. I use the data as identifying trends because we have to remember that 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 data that you go out tomorrow and pull that soil sample was a snapshot in time at that particular moment because this soil is living and breathing and it's going to change all the time so i'm looking at trends of what is organic carb doing or what is organic nitrogen doing and i don't try to make decisions based on that one particular soil test so it goes back to what we talked about in the beginning when you're just getting started you don't have any trends because you don't have any data points yet but now we're i i think i rick when did your test come out to the public what year was it when was it available that was that that was him uh 10 11 about 2011 12 somewhere I think we started on 13, so I just somehow got in right close to when you were getting started. Well, we've got a pretty good trend now, of almost 10 years worth of data. And so, Deanna, I guess since I don't add anything, I guess for peace of mind, I want to make sure the system's not crashing. And so far, every time I do a test, the, the, the results are the same or higher than they were the previous test. So we got to be doing something right with our, the diversity and, and some in, livestock integration and all these, these other things we got going on. I'll, I'll be real honest with you, Rick. I thought you were just going to say you needed a write-off from all that profit. Well, yeah, that, that's true. That, that well, he doesn't have to pay for soul testing right. anymore. Cause yeah. Well, yeah. But, but I got to pay his light bill now. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, um, okay. Follow up on that. So, so Gabe Brown used to send me a lot of samples and then he kind of tapered off, right? Cause he didn't, he, and he called me when he said, I don't need your stupid test anymore. I, I'm there. Oh. And then not long after that year or two, he started sending me samples again. And so, you know, I don't, I have a long memory on some things. And so I was like, well, I thought you said you didn't. He said, well, I kind of wanted to know what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. But that's really it in a nutshell. It's like, you can sit there and you can think this and think that, but when you get the results back, it's like, ah, yes, it is so important to know that you're on the right track yeah. or if you're on the wrong track, you know, it's so important. That, I mean, that's, that's why, that's why there's so many things, you know, this, this regenerative movement, you've got, we've got to be careful here that we've got so many, there's such a community like, like Mitchell's Mitchell horse company is a great data company to baseline your farm. And then you start doing the Haney tests, you start adding biology, and then you can see exactly what you just said, Rick, is this working or not? I mean, are we moving forward or are we moving backwards? You've got to collect data to know this. Yep. So it's so important. Um, let's see what else. Oh, and then to finish, uh, Deanna, to finish your question, what management decisions I would make then is we would try to figure out how can we get that acre into a better rotation of diversity. What I mean by that is we are in the Midwest, it gets cold, it's already October 13th. 
we're done planting, you know, things that are going to winter kill, radish, oats, cowpea, sun hemp, sunflower. So now when you've got a field that, that hasn't been harvested yet, you're looking at one or two choices, wheat or, or cereal rye. Well, that's not much diversity. So then next year, we've got to figure out how do we get that farm back into the program. And a lot of times that's done with, through what I call regen year. And that's where you take the acre out of production. And then you just give a massive uh, cool season cocktail followed by a massive warm season cocktail and then get into the whatever you need for the next year's cash crop. So that's what I use the test for, just to not make sure we're on course. Sorry, Rick, not to poke fun at you here. I was going to say, instead of saying you're taking that acre out of production, I would say you're putting that acre back into production. Okay. Yeah. I'll start we did saying, the same thing. Poking. We did the same yeah. thing at the research station. We had some some fields that were just pathetic and it was like it's like i'm not wasting my time trying to grow a cash crop i'm just not yeah and that's what we did we just overwhelmed it with diversity because that's what nature does is it, you know if a plant puts out a seed pod it doesn't put out one seed you know for per plant right it puts out right. 50 thousand or right so that's what we did and that and that really actually worked we just kept everything rotated around and it, it actually worked we made money yeah. Well, I mean, you know, again, we've been programmed to call that giant ragweed a, a weed and yeah. we got to get rid of it. And we got to get rid of it. Well, it's there for a reason. It's telling it us is. something. It needs yes. the soil is missing something. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that's so, it. Uh, see, if, boy, if we could just listen to the plants in the soil with yeah. intelligence, you know, with uncommon sense. We, boy, it would change everything. And that's yeah. what we're really kind of trying to nudge th these things forward to. Yeah, I, I think it's awesome what it's awesome what you guys are doing. Um, Ed Bourgeois, another another long, long listener. Thanks, Ed. How you doing? Can we learn anything from the makeup and amounts of exudates a plant is putting out at different times? Ooh, I'll, I'll take that one. So fun. Uh, I could have spent. 14 careers trying to figure out what exudates to put in the extractant that I developed, right? Because there's plants have a, an arsenal of chemicals that they can bring to bear on a situation. Yeah. So you could develop H3A and get it out there, and here we go, because, you know, farmers have 40 years, another 40 years to screw around and not, you know, have any help, right? It's not right. a big deal. But I, I use the, the three major right that that were across plant species that it's like everybody seemed to use these and the reason there's not 45 different chemicals in that is is very is that region right there because you never get anywhere with trying to figure out oh it's, you know science is really good at at spending a hell of a lot of time and giving no real actionable information and that was not what we were after I am sure that there it's way more complex than that extracted, but but you know, you got to start somewhere, and that's that's a step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. As far as the okay. timing goes, I was gonna say, as far as the timing goes, I mean, you got to think about what the plant needs and when, right? So mm -hmm. early on at germination, what's that plant trying to do? Well, it's trying to stimulate biology, but it's trying to establish leaf area and root mass, right? The nutrient needs of the plant 
of corn when it's at V3 is not nearly what it is getting ready to hit tassel, right? Reproduction. So, and I think, so you're going to see an increase in root exudation at the time when those crops are requiring the largest amount of nutrient uptake. Yeah. And there's a couple of reasons for that. A, they need the nutrient uptake and we know the microbes control that pathway, those, those pathways. B, you're at the point now where the plant is not getting larger, not growing more leaf area. It is, it, it's got a luxury system. Its roots are there. Yeah. It's going to take all that luxury sunshine, convert it into these compounds and shove it into the soil to get the nutrients so it can pack it all into grain, right? It's all about reproduction when it, you got an annual crop. Yeah. And, and there's a reason why it takes three years to establish perennials and things like that, because they're more conservative. You know, they're not going to just shove all these root exudates out right away. Annual crops will do it. But I think you get into that part of the growing season. That's where they're pumping the majority of it in. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. The, the goal of every living species is to procreate. Right. So and that's what the corn plants trying to do. But put on a big old ear out there. Yeah. It's going to it, it'll kill itself to do that. It'll cannibalize itself. Yep. All right. Let's get into a, a first of all, before we put the slide up. Lance, your it's your lab, regionaglab.com, correct? Correct. Regionaglab.com. Lance, do you have a tab or somewhere on your website that gives instructions how to properly take a soil sample? Yes. So okay. right on the home page, up at the top, it says how to sample uh, or okay. sampling instruction, Perfect. one of the two. Uh, yep. So that's there. Okay. So we're, the, the, the viewer should be, you don't have to hire an agronomist to do this. You can get, you can do this stuff yourself. You can follow the instructions, get a probe, take the samples, and the samples are going to come to your lab, and then you guys are going to run it. So tell us a little, don't go into huge, you know, an hour-long detail, but go through the steps here. On a, on, on, We're going to do the Haney test for, is the first slide we're going to put up. Okay. Uh, yeah, so samples received at the lab, we take the information you give us, we capture that information. Samples are air-dried, so they're dried at room temperature. Uh, overnight, um, just simply fans and dehumidifiers. Oh my gosh! Sample you must, is you, you must the, the place must be huge. I mean, how many samples you got? You got thousands of samples. Oh, he's, he's a clever boy. He's got it figured out. It's really slick. Yeah. Yes. So well, so we built we built four drying rooms, and those rooms are thirty six feet long and five feet wide. Samples get put on bread carts in in cardboard boats, and they're rolled into these rooms. Each room can hold around three thousand two hundred samples. Wow. So we can dry and grind. We can dry over 12,000 samples a day. And there's no high back system in that room at all. There's nothing but fans and dehumidifier. Lasco yeah. loves us because we bought about 200 Lasco box fans. <laughs> um, but hey, really simple. No HVAC, no heat, no air. Um, dehumidification, floor drains, and a wall of fans. Clever. And we can control those on and off. Um, I would say less than 1% of all the samples we receive are not dried within 12 hours. And that's because when we take them out of the plastic bag, they look like soup. Uh, wow. So it works really well. Uh, they're dried quickly. Once they're dried, they're pretty well preserved. You know, that, that drying shuts down the biology a lot. And so 
the samples are dried and then ground for, for normal protocol, which is sub two millimeter. So they go through a grinder. They, they're in the grinder for less than five seconds. Uh, they're, they're hammer mills, grind that soil, and then we're going to get that out in the lab. We're going to set up a subsample of that for respiration. We're going to do the H3A extract on a subsample, and we're going to analyze that for all of the nutrient content, so nitrate, potassium, phosphorus, et cetera, et cetera. And then we're going to do a water extract. So this is just deionized water with no mineral content in it at all. From that extract, we're going to analyze for organic carbon. We're going to analyze for organic nitrogen or total nitrogen. Uh, and then we're also going to analyze nitrate, ammonium, and phosphorus on that. Now, you don't see that on the report. We use that as an internal quality control. Uh, and then the, the other stuff that you're getting on the test is pH, soluble salts, excess lime, and organic matter. Uh, those four items are run exactly the same way as we would for a conventional, you know, quote-unquote conventional test. Yeah. So those, those methods were add-ons. Um, I think there's about 17 or 18 independent measurements then. Um, and you'll notice on the report, there's a whole lot more than 17 or 18 things there. Yeah. Uh, but all of those things are then combined. Uh, Rick's magic from up here gets applied to those numbers. We calculate different ratios, uh, percent max, soil health score, uh, organic nitrogen release. And it's a whole bunch of those factors going into that that give us this, this piece. So one of the neat things about it is, is that I got all these people to say, well, it's not calibrated, right? And we've heard that all the time. And I say, it's using the exact same instrumentation that we're running Malik 3 extracts on. An ICP, a color metric, all the same instrumentation. The only thing that changed is the extract. And I'll say, well, if these numbers are invalid or they're not calibrated, then nothing's calibrated in our lab. Yeah. We run four check samples every day on all of phases of that test. We also run blanks, multiple blanks every day on all phases of those tests. A wow. standard wow. curve of known concentration up to 10 standards in a single curve is run on every single instrument on every phase of that test. And then every 30 samples, there's a quality control run on every one of those phases of that test. And lastly, blind checks. We have soil samples that we insert into the system that the technicians don't even know what they are and they run them with everything else and those data get collected. So we've got multiple layers of that in there. So anybody who says to me, it's not calibrated, I just hand them a copy of our 17 page QAQC manual and tell them to read through it if they want to really ask. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's impressive. That is impressive. So let's put up, Rachel, let's put up the first slide. This is an actual uh, result, test result back from uh, Ag, uh, Regen Ag Lab, and this is what it would look like. Okay, so everybody can see this. Now, Rick, let's start, let's start right here on the H3 extract. You've got uh, You've got the, the nitrate, nitrate, ammonium, and the inorganic nitrogen there. So explain what's happening here in this, in this box. Well, that's, so not all nitrogen is one form. So there, that's just two different forms of inorganic nitrogen, right? And added yeah. together. That's all that is. 
it doesn't really matter if you use A3A or water or whatever, KCL for nitrate because it's soluble. You, okay. You get it very close. Okay. And then the H2 extract, how do we read those numbers? You, so got, total, you got total nitrogen of parts per million, like 27.6 parts per million. Yeah. So that's the water extract. And yeah. that's run on a carbon nitrogen analyzer. So that's your total nitrogen in a water extract. And then we subtract the nitrate and the ammonium, which is the inorganic nitrogen, off of that. And what you're left with is organic nitrogen. Okay. So if we were if we were in a full tillage system, non-regenerative, high chemistry, high fertility, high tillage, we're going to have low organic nitrogen and high inorganic nitrogen. Is that correct? correct? Correct. And as you transition to a regenerative system, those numbers start to flip. Yeah. And that is one of the most sensitive indicators that I've seen over the years. That that's really the first indicator that really starts to show that you're you're making progress. Because we were sampling our soils uh, for you know every few months at the research station, and that was the first indicator that showed that we were really starting to make some head. It so, wasn't organic matter, it wasn't water extracted organic carbon, it wasn't respiration, it wasn't anything like that. Yeah. So, and Rick, Rick so that's exactly what that organic nitrogen to inorganic nitrogen ratio is showing you. So, in, in a system that is built, surrounded mostly on biology with, with low, low nitrogen input uh, from the inorganic side, that's what that ratio shows you. So the higher that ratio is, the more organic in you have, and that's a more dominant form in your system. Yeah. Like on this, your example here is organic in to inorganic is 4.52. That means you have 4.5 times more organic nitrogen than inorganic. That, that's good. Not one right? to one. Yeah. One to one is what we were shooting for. Yeah. We would just get, get them to one to one. You know, this one's way above. Right. So, so now I don't, I don't want to jump around here too much, but, 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 Liz and your wife Liz and Soil Regen and, and you folks are creating this regenerative score or, um, uh, you know, you pass a certification. This is one of the categories you're looking at, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So now let's move to phosphorus now. What, uh, what, what are we seeing here with, uh, you got total, total P parts per million. So what does 8.9, what's that mean? Parts per million. Well, that's, so that's just the, that's the same thing as the nitrogen, except we're using the H3A extract for phosphate. And so that's your total phosphorus. And then we can split it into inorganic and organic. But now, I mean, is, Rick, is there a way to say, is there a, a rule of thumb that parts per million is equal to how many pounds? Uh, two times 2.3. So take take 8.9 times 2.3. 2.3 would be pounds P2O5, which is fertilizer. Yeah. Okay. All right. and, and we do that calculation for you, Rick. It's on that report. And it's the it's in the phosphorus section. It's the one clear to the right. Oh, okay. 20. Yeah, we, just can't, we can't see it on your screen. Yep. Okay. All right. Perfect. So, so is that a good, is that a good number to see on your, on the phosphorus extract, uh, 20.5? Well, it depends if your pathway is open or not. Have you done a biomakers? I've not I done a biomakers. that right in there. No, I don't. That's have... what we're trying to learn. That's, 
that that's what I was talking about earlier, Rick, is how do we define whether that's good or bad? Yeah. Right? So if you were if you were in a native range system in Kansas, I would tell you that that's more than adequate. Yeah. If you were growing potatoes, we would tell you that that's probably deficient. Yeah. Right. Regardless of, of the pathways open or not, is it, 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 it when your crops really demand it, you're not going to have it. But <clears throat> here's what I'll say. I've seen numbers at 10 parts per million and you are there. I'm assuming this is one of your samples, Rick. Um, you are there. You're not putting on phosphorus. Are you seeing phosphorus deficiency? You know, are you seeing purple streaks and all these different issues? No. We've had people, your neighbor could have 20 parts per million and he's going to show deficiency before you do. And that's what goes back to that pathway. And so, Yes, we have a ranking box below this on the report. You'll notice they're all blank because we're still trying to develop that part out. And that's where the context comes in. And that's where we're hoping the biomakers for anything that's run, that'll be part of the context. Yeah. We'll add into this so we can tell you exactly whether that's alarming or not alarming. It's just going to be so huge. I mean, this is, this is huge in itself. But to, to put the biomaker's twist on this thing, that's it's going to be big. All right, let's move on to other soil measures. Obviously, soil pH. Tell me, guys, what do you think? Again, I know this is context-based. Midwest, I-State, What where should we be on pH? Right there. Yep. All right. Yep. That'll work. Now, Rick, this is a, this is somewhat of an attest, a testament to what you're doing because your pH is 7.2 here. What we yeah. typically see when we get east of, of the Missouri River is that the pHs start to go down, right? Less, less calcium carbonate in the soil to start with, more weathered soils, older soils, but yeah. high excess nitrogen input, which drives the pH down. Right why so many people are putting on lime, right? You right. move away from the nitrogen input, you start plant as much of it. You don't have to eliminate it, but you've done that, but remove it, plant cover crops, and you start to cycle calcium and magnesium from subsoils and deposit them on the surface to help buffer additional pH change and neutralize acidic pH. Yeah. So any, anywhere between 6.3 and probably 7.4, is really kind of where you want to be at now yeah. oh, great yeah we've not added uh we've not added any p or k or ag lime in eight years now and that to me it goes back to De deanna's question of why do i run these tests because right there tells me that we're doing okay what we're doing is still okay mm -hmm. um so soluble salt tell us what that what is mmho over centimeters i assume yeah so uh soluble salts is measured by electrical conductivity okay so in other words you're measuring voltage across um an anode in the in the soil so wow. milli ohm that's milli ohms per centimeter Okay, and you'll also see things like deci siemens per meter and all these other units. Um, but regardless, that's how it's measured. Now, what does it mean? I get really tired of people talking about salt 
and they think salt is sodium chloride. That's all they think salt is. So they're concerned with sodium and they're concerned with chloride. All of these nutrients in the soil are salts. Anything that dissociates, and what I mean by dissociates, take gypsum, for example, calcium sulfate. You've add water to it and you get calcium plus, two plus, and you get sulfate two minus. Those are ions, positive, negative. And now that's a salt bridge, okay? So these are salts. Phosphorus is a salt. Phosphate is a salt. Boron is a salt. All of these are salts. The difference is, is they're not all equally soluble. So we know that phosphorus isn't very soluble, right? We've been fighting that in the fertilizer game for 60 years. You put yeah. phosphorus on, why isn't it available? Well, it's not soluble. So nitrate is soluble. It is a salt. Sulfate is soluble. It is a salt. Chloride is soluble as a salt. And sodium is soluble as a salt. Those four out of all the big ones that we look at in plant fertility are the four that influence this number the most. If you want to watch that number change, go dump 200 pounds of nitrogen fertilizer on and your soluble salts go from 1 point, or 0.12 to 0.8. And then as the crop takes that up, your soluble salts come back down. Dump on a two tons of gypsum, soluble salts go up. Now, why is that important? It's actually a measure of your overall soil fertility. It's a representation of that as, as, a, as a nutshell. Saying So when we see soluble salts really high, the overall arching answer is, well, your soil is overly fertile. An overly fertile soil creates salty soil solution and imitates drought stress in the plant. On top of that, this, is, this was something I actually, I taught Rick something once. I wow. did. I know <laughs> this is being recorded, right? So like yeah. I taught Rick Haney something one time. He had some soil samples and he was running them at his lab here down in, in Temple. And he said, Lance, he goes, I got these soils from Minnesota. He said, organic matter, seven, eight, nine percent water, soluble carbon, the food in the system, you know, 500, 600 parts per million. Respiration is in the single digits, single digits. Why? And I said, well, Rick, I, let me, you know, I said, send them to me. We'll run them right. And then, you know, we'll, we'll answer yeah. that question. Well, yeah. Well, one thing we were doing that Rick wasn't doing is we were running these other soil measures, right? pH, soluble salts, et cetera. So when we looked at the soluble salts, the soluble salts were like three and a half and five. I mean, they were off the charts high. And we also ran sulfur. And at the time, Rick wasn't running sulfur. And we saw the sulfur number at 1,200 parts per million, 1,800 parts per million come to find out these producers were being told by their agronomists to put on gypsum two tons a year and have been doing so for the last six years. Why were they being told that? They said to put it on to change the soil pH. Gypsum is pH neutral. Calcium does not neutralize acidity in soil. It is calcium carbonate. It is a carbonate ion. And if if sodium wasn't so damaging to the soil, you could use sodium bicarbonate to do the same thing. So putting those pieces together, your crop is drought stressed, whether it's from true drought, lack of moisture or salt stress, your microbes are salt stressed or drought. Yeah. Stressed. 
So this is, we added that to this test because it's such a powerful piece of this interpretation um, when we see those types of things. And, and unfortunately, we see those things more often than I would like to. So this would be another, you could quickly identify if someone is regenerative or not by looking at this number right here, right? On most soils, yes, because soils that have really high fertilizer inputs typically have high soluble salts. Not With, always the case, but it, it is typically the case. Yeah, I mean, it, it, to me, it's back to that where you guys were, that Rick was saying earlier, you just have some uncommon sense here and, and it all kind of comes together. Um, so that's what I was using when Lance had to teach me something. <laughs> I was using yeah. my uncommon sense, and he's like, "No, it's over here. It's common. It's called common sense." I went, "Oh, yeah. okay, all right." Yeah, it's the only one time. It was fun. I, hey. I like to learn things. Rick, when, one when, page in the five hundred pages of stuff he's taught me that I got him on one. Well, you got it. You have to exploit that. So I'm, I'm with you, Lance. You got to whenever you got the chance, you got to get it in there. Okay, so excess lime says none. Is that a normal score? Yes, so excess lime is going to be the lime is just your calcium carbonate. So typically we see excess lime when we get into western Nebraska, Kansas, eastern slopes of Colorado through the west. Um, again, on the eastern slope or eastern side of the country, um, we typically don't see any excess lime because your calcium carbonate's all been broken down over time and, and neutralized in the soil. Okay. Uh Soil organic matter percent LOI, 4.4. That's, I would say that you're probably 1%, 1.4% above average for your area. Okay, all right. Um, now let's move into fertility. You've got the H3 extract again here. You've got potassium at parts per million. So what's the, that's 39. What's the magic number there? What do you multiply that by to get the pounds? 1.3 right, or 1.2. Yeah, it varies. 1.2 to 1.3. And is that on here as well, uh, Lance, as a, as a total? We, we uh, I don't believe on potassium that we actually do that calculation. We do that for nitrogen and phosphorus. Um, can we don't do it. Yeah, where, we, we don't. Guys, do it. Where, where do we find these these conversions? I mean, like so, calcium four hundred ninety five parts per million. What's that? How many pounds of calcium is that? Well, here's the caveat with that. Everybody wants these numbers in pounds per acre, right? Everybody does. Converting them into pounds per acre is not actually correct. Okay. Okay. I know this is going to get real scientific and confusing. <laughs> Rick's laughing already. But the reason for this is because when you're for soluble nutrients, nitrate, sulfate, you can convert those to pounds per acre because it's a concentration based on a, a, a depth and area of sample, right, of soil. So okay. an acre to a depth of six inches. So it's like saying how much water's in this swimming pool. If you know the diameter or the, the area and the depth, you can calculate that on a volume. Right. Cations like potassium, calcium, magnesium, and sodium exist on an exchange complex, the CEC, right? So when you take an extract and you're, you're extracting those nutrients, what you're really measuring is the intent. Um, 
the the ability of the soil to release those nutrients off the CEC, it's an intensity reading. So your soil is able to supply potassium at an intensity of 39 parts per million using the H3A extract. If you use a malic 3 extract, the intensity changes, right? And so that is what ends up happening. So saying that, that this is a pounds per acre a measurement is not actually accurate. Now, yeah. you'll see a lot of labs convert it. And the general rule of thumb for most of these is they just take them all and multiply them by two. And the reason they do two is because if you assume a standard bulk density of 1.32 grams per centimeter, and you take an acre of soil to a depth of 6.67 inches at that bulk density, you get 2 million pounds of soil to an acre. You got parts per million and 2 million, the millions cancel. You take that number times two, call it pounds per acre. Yeah. And what he just said was really important about the extracting part is like Malik 3, his intensity is way higher than H3A. Does that make it right? No. Yeah. Right. Actually, it, put, it moves you that far away from it. it if you look on. at H3A phosphate versus H3 versus Malik 3 phosphate, they're correlated like an R square of 0.87, which is pretty yeah. good, but they're yeah. wildly different numbers. And that's your intensity pack. If yeah. the plant produced Malik 3, then we would want to use Malik 3 as your intensity rating. Exactly. Because that's measuring how, how that plant can pull that out of the soil. That's all you're measuring is how well can that solution well, pull that out. Yeah, it, it goes back to what Rick said earlier. When it rains, it's not raining Malik 3. So it's, it's just that simple. Well, now, so, okay. So, guys, is there, okay, you know, I'm not the agronomist here. I'm, I'm, I'm the dumb farmer from Indiana. Is, is a calcium of 495 parts per million, is that good, bad? I mean, am I, am I on course? Is there a chart somewhere I can get to, to that, that tells me what all these parts, am, am, am I in well, good your, levels? Your pH there? is already telling us that's okay. Okay. Right? So what, one of the things that I've messed around with is calcium versus iron and aluminum. <clears throat> because if you add your iron and aluminum together, right, and that's if that's more than your calcium, you've got a very you got a problem. So I, I like to look at calcium, iron, aluminum. And, but that you know, I'm guessing I can't see the iron aluminum, but I'm guessing you're three to one. Iron so. is yeah seven parts per million. Aluminum is 117. Yeah, so that'd be three to one or so, right? Calcium divided by, yeah, yeah, four to one. That's where you want to be. Yeah. Yep. Because you yeah. can get soils that, you know, have 2,500 parts per million calcium and even less iron aluminum. You've got, a, you know, a 30 to one calcium iron aluminum ratio. And guess what? Now your phosphate availability goes down. Like, well, you know, there's lots of reasons for that. But I, yeah. I, I see calcium iron aluminum as the driver's of pH. So that that's just a another way to look at pH and verify that. You know, your pH number looks good. Your calcium iron aluminum ratio looks good. You know, that's, that's just two in the hole for you. Okay. So, so let, let me go, let's go somewhere right now then, because I am right now, and I still think it's progression through this system of taking away all chemistry, all tillage, or most of, most of the tillage, um, 
foxtail and everyone wants to tell me that it's either compaction or you have a calcium problem well I, I, that's not what i'm getting here so yeah you don't have a calcium problem no so we now need to figure out what what in my system is making foxtail want to thrive uh, maybe you should be growing foxtail and marketing it yeah i would love to do that because i've got plenty of seed Right. See, Let's, see how we're thinking about these things. If yeah. we can now, we've got to establish a market for foxtail. You can naturally grow it. And you know what I need to do is I need to send that foxtail seed and get the nutrient density analyzed on it. I better be pretty high. Yeah, and then you can use it in you know whatever. Yeah, trail mix. Yeah. Now trail mix. Rick, I'll mention this. You know, you were asking about the pounds per acre. Yeah. When, when a laboratory provides you with fertilizer recommendations or nutrient input recommendations, right? Those recommendations are provided to you in pounds per acre. Right. Because that's how you buy fertilizer, right? right. And that's how you apply it. However, those recommendations are based off of the part per million number. So it's the part per million number that gets plugged into the different equations to generate a pound per acre outcome. It's not the pounds per acre of the soil. You know, we're not converting yeah. it up front. It's being converted on the back end after the calculations run because it's an intensity rating that's being put into that. So I just wanted to let, you know, iterate that, that when yeah. it's done that way and then then it has to do with the crop you're growing and the yield goal you have, because that in that will determine how high does that intensity rating need to be. And so yeah. the idea of putting on phosphorus is that you're going to put phosphorus on so you can have a higher release intensity rate. That's why they say you put 18 pounds of P2O5 on to raise your soil test one part per million. Because wow. most of that phosphorus gets tied up and will not be released. That's, you're releasing, you know, point or you're releasing less than uh, five. You're about five percent. And that's now that's based on straight chemistry. Yeah, that's just chemistry, right? Yeah, so we was, we're completely ignoring the biological effect right. of helping release that phosphorus, right? That's got to make that clear. Inefficient, extremely yeah, inefficient. You can change that intensity, right? by having the right biology. And so yeah. that's why you can have a lower soil test level and have really good biology and not see the same deficiencies that you would see if this was still here and the biology was here. Right. See, and again, that's why this biomakers thing is gonna be just, it's, it's just, I'm excited, I'm excited. Okay, soil health box, H2 extract. Um, we have soil respiration, Parts per million of 145. Is that pretty good? Hey, yes, that's really good. Okay. Organic carbon, parts per million, 262. Really good. Um, uh, MAC, what's MAC? That's, that's your respiration divided by the organic carbons, the water soil organic carbon. So that, to me, that is, you know, how much... How much of the carbon that got extracted did the microbes chew up and release? Yeah. That's an indicator to me of how much they like your carbon. And so that's what we've always wanted people to get to is about, you know, 
Yeah, this that is to 50, me is is a pretty 50, ideal number. Yeah, this is fifty five percent. Yeah, fifty if fifty percent is great, thirty percent is okay. One hundred ninety percent might be, you know, you might be burning your carbon up. Yeah, too yeah. active. There's such a thing as too active. Think, I, I always say think of it like uh, think of it like spending versus income, or spending versus your account. So you have available. 262 parts per million carbon. That's what you have available. Yeah. The microbes are spending 146. Okay. So when somebody says to me, what should my respiration be or what should my carbon be? More importantly, what is your spending rate? Yeah. If I told you I spent $10,000 a day, that can sound really scary. And if I only make, if I only make $2,000 a day, that is scary. Now you're right. a farmer. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, if I make $20,000 a day, I'm at 50%. Yeah. That's not a bad deal. So when you're trying to build organic matter, the goal here is to make sure, because organic matter is your savings account. The soluble carbon is your checking account. If you start spending too much and you deplete the checking account, where do you turn? Well, the microbes go to your savings account. So when yeah. Rick said, if your percent Mac is above a hundred percent, it's going to happen from time to time. You know, just like things happen, your, your transmission goes out on your 49 and you got to, you know, send it into the shop Yeah. or you buy one of these. It's going to happen from time to time, but if it yeah, becomes the trend, yeah, if it becomes a trend, now we've got an issue where we're depleting the soil organic matter. And by and large, that has been the trend on most agricultural land across the world, yeah. which is why the organic matter numbers have gone down collectively. Yeah, yeah. It's, guys, it's amazing when you take away all those caustic acids and salts and all that, and your soil can start to breathe again and do what it was meant to do. This is the type of numbers you, I mean, we've added nothing in going on nine years now. Well, the analogy I like to have is, is that folks that say that this region agriculture and all that's doesn't really mean anything it's like just have them lay down and step on their throat yeah yeah they like that and say <laughs> that's what you're doing to your soil exactly so um, carbon to nitrogen ratio 11.5 that's got to be a pretty good number between 10 10 and 12 is ideal we're, we're okay with it between 8 and 15 you yep. get below eight, you're lacking energy to drive the microbial system. You get above 15, you start to limit the nutrient cycling side because the microbes are tying it up in order to access carbon. Unless you're in a native pasture system, then it, then it can edge up because yeah. that's yeah. already super efficient. So that can yep. go up to 18 to 19 to one and yeah. be all right. That's like a trickle charger at that point yep. when it comes that's to releasing right. nutrients. It's a very slow release because those perennial plants don't have these huge up and down yep. swings, right, of nutrient demand. And they're like, and they're just like, I am to Liz. Whenever she needs something, I hand it to her immediately. Sure. And that, that's <laughs> the native pasture system, basically. Mm -hmm. The nutrients become available. They get taken, they're handed to the plants. Like, here you go. There's no without, waste. Everything's efficient. Without question. Doesn't matter what it costs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. SHC, Rick, what's that box? That's a soil health calculation. Okay. This has a, a number of 19.6. Yeah, it's really good. The national average is still running about seven. Seven? Yep. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 
All right. Now your next, your next op- what's that? No, okay. Your next box is cover crop suggestion. So tell us how you're getting to this this calculation of a 30% legume and a 70% grass. That That's really based on uh, your organic carbon, organic nitrogen number. So NRCS wanted that. I mean, they really wanted that. Actually, what they wanted me to do back in the day was tell them exactly what plant species to plant. I was like, no, you can't tell that from this at all so they wanted some guidance for people just getting started with cover crops okay based on their soil test we're what what kind of a mix you know we don't have brassicas in there it's just legumes grasses just real simple just for folks to get started most of the time i ignore that okay yeah Yeah. Yeah. this is that that's pretty useful for somebody rick who, who says you know i've done this for the first time i don't even know where to start the main message there is no matter how you slice that percentages, it's not a monoculture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and like Rick said, it's based on the seed in ratio first. If that's balanced, like yours is, then it's based on your soil health score. The higher the soil health score, the higher the demand for carbon. So the higher percentage of grass. Okay. Yep. Okay. So now you've got nitrogen comparison. So this is quite, quite a box to look at. We've got traditional in it based on what you see on this this sheet here of 9.6 available pounds of nitrogen. And on the Haney part of it, you're saying I've got 66.6 pounds of nitrogen. That's quite a difference. Well, if you're only going to look at one thing. I mean, if you're just going to, standard test looks at nitrate nitrogen and acts like there's no other forms of nitrogen at play in the soil, which is insane. That's insane. Because if that was true, then plants would not have survived these millions of years, would they? Right. They can't survive on nine pounds of nitrogen. So we know that there's something else in play, and that's organic nitrogen has been forever trying to bring that back into the system through the biology to make it work. Yeah. It's yeah. like if I looked at Liz and only saw her eyes and nothing else, which is, is how it works. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not taking in the whole picture. Yeah. So that, <laughs> I love it. No? The traditional nitrogen in pounds per acre is we're taking nitrate on your test at four, and we're converting it to pounds per acre by multiplying that by your depth in inches times 0.3. Okay. And that's the standard. That is what they do on conventional soil tests as well. So if you look at nitrate only, your nitrogen credit would be 9.6 pounds. The Haney test credit includes nitrate plus ammonium plus the organic nitrogen release, all summed together, multiplied by 0.3 times the depth in inches to get pounds per acre. Of course, the difference is self-explanatory. And then we put a dollar value in there. Now that's not exact, right? Everybody's paying a different dollar amount. I believe the value we have in here, depending on when this was taken, I think we're using uh, $1 and seven cents per pound. And so then we show you that nitrogen savings on there. Um, But yeah, this is just to to straight show people um, how big that difference is. And further down that path you go on this journey, guess what? This is exactly what we see. I mentioned earlier, the average was 18.9 pounds on the difference. Russell Hedrick, he claims he gets 60 pounds. According to his test, you're at 57. 
right? Yeah. And so that's big money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if you look and if you look at your organic to inorganic ratio, that kind of tells you that also, right? It's like you, yeah. you have way more organic nitrogen. Well, then you should you have the bio. Here's the fun part. We don't just go, well, you got this much organic nitrogen, so you're good. You don't pay it at all, unless you have the biology, the microbial activity to match it. Because yeah. that thing is weighted so that if your if your microbial activity was like, you know, 30 or 20, you wouldn't get all that as credited. Yeah. Your microbial activity is really good based on your CDN ratio, your organic nitrogen, all that. So it's not like a one size fits all or a simple calculation that's straight up. It depends on all these integrated measurements yeah and you know it's taken a long time to get to these numbers it, this just doesn't happen overnight uh we've been on this journey a long time so you gotta you gotta keep all this in perspective but you've gotta if you haven't done anything yet you've got to start now you've got to start making changes now and take advantage take advantage of all this this data that's on this piece of paper now and 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 rick you got to keep in mind too is it this has got a built-in conservancy in it oh yeah so the credit you're given is I've, capped out or maxed at the amount of organic nitrogen you can measure yeah but you'll see that up above it says organic nitrogen release 22.6 the organic nitrogen reserve is zero and so then people say, well, is that good or bad? Well, what it tells me is that if you had more organic nitrogen in the water extract, your credit would likely be higher than what is shown here. So yeah. that becomes your goal. But at the same time, we're not going to extrapolate beyond what you can measure and guess at how much more you're going to get. And so I've had people say, it's a drought. You told me I was going to get 20 or 50 pounds of nitrogen and I'm in a drought. Correct. And they say, well, I'm not going to get 50 pounds. Correct. Yeah. But if you're that drought stressed, I don't care how much nitrogen you have out there. Your plants are done. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, if you get really good, you know, good weather and you're getting timely rains, you're very likely going to get more than what you're being credited for on this test. The sure. problem is, is that we never know year to year which one of those extremes is going to happen, right? Perfect weather, too wet, or a drought. And unless you're irrigating, like out in my part of the world, you don't really have any control over it. So yeah. when you go write that huge fertilizer check and you're really hopeful that the weather's going to be perfect, on average, that happens one out of 10 years. Two oh. out of 10 years is a disaster. And seven out of 10 years are average. So these recommendations and credits are designed to center around the average to make those two years that are bad years, not as bad, not nearly as bad. Yeah. And you might miss out just a little bit on potential on that one good year. But as soon as somebody can tell me what year that is and stamp a guarantee on it, I, I don't care. Yeah. You're just well, talking about part. I, I remember that guy years ago. He said, well, if you don't ride, your test don't really don't matter. I said, neither is $100,000 you spent on fertilizer. Yeah. He went, oh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're just there trying to a, take, I, take the noise out. I saw a question pop up while we were having that discussion, about, uh, if you don't mind, Rick. Uh, yeah. About the, cover, the fixing nitrogen. Yeah. The cover crop or different crops. 
why would you not use clover, peanuts? I don't know what Roybo says. Alfalfa, lupins, or native flowers that fix nitrogen as well and just suggest legumes and grasses. Those are also, those belong those huh? belong in the legume. Those are in the legume category. Yeah. Yeah. So they are included. You can pick whatever legume you'd like. And right. then those those things, you know, clover won't work everywhere, right? Not everybody wants to put alfalfa into a system, but any of those or any of those plant species that will fix nitrogen directly from the atmosphere with the, using microbes as their their gatekeeper fit into the legume category. So you can pick and choose whichever ones you want. And even in perennial systems, that's exactly what we recommend: flowers, yeah. clovers, alfalfa, grass mixes, perennial type plants to go into those perennial or at least biannuals to go into those systems. And then also, what are your thoughts on nitrogen in rock like like arid shale added? The, the nitrogen in rock? That's what it says. What are your thoughts on nitrogen in rock like arid shale? Uh, I guess what are my thoughts on how did it get there? Or um, I would say that it's captured. I mean, the rock is believe it or not, rock has pore space in it. And I would say that most of that is gas fixed inside rock. When they do the analysis to dry, uh, to burn that off and, and just nitrogen's analyzed by dry combustion, total combustion. When you burn that, you'll end up converting or releasing that nitrogen out of that. So you're measuring it. As far as a fertilizer source goes, um, you know, nitrogen's nitrogen, it's an element. You need to be spraying mainly three on your ground to release that. Yeah. Yeah, you have to break. Yeah, that's the only thing. It's like rock phosphate, right? We we as human beings really like to label things. I was joking around. I stopped at a convenience store today, and I saw a bottle of water, and I've said this before, and it said, and it, and it basically just said, non-GMO, vegetarian, <laughs> carb-free, zero sugar. And I'm like, seriously, it's a bottle of water. Do, is this, you know... The Market. point is, the point is, is that microbes, I, I don't like the term, and I've said this before, synthetic nitrogen. There's no such thing as yeah. synthetic nitrogen. We don't create that in a lab. It is an element. We package it in different forms and, and provide it in different forms, but the nitrogen itself is not synthetic. Phosphorus itself, the microbes don't care. You can put, you can put phosphorus a rock phosphate on a on a soil or uh, sorry 1152 on a soil grow corn non-organic corn cut the corn silage feed it to a cow let the cow crap out the phosphorus and now that's an organic fertilizer but where did that phosphorus come from synthetic synthetic right yeah 1152 so <laughs> microbes don't care so if you've got a source of nutrients the problem with fertilizer, it's a question of intensity and timing. It's not the nitrogen itself that's toxic. It's the fact that the system, it'd be like, we're told to drink 64 ounces of water a day, right? Well, how well do you feel if you get up in the morning and chug 64 ounces of water and then don't no. drink any more for the next 24 hours? Yeah. That's what fertilizers like in a lot of cases. It's like, hey, the system needs 200 pounds of nitrogen. 
well, let's just throw it all on now or split it into two hundred pound applications and call that good. That's the issue. It's not the nitrogen itself or the phosphorus itself. Right. That's great. Great definition. Thank you. Uh, we have a great question here from Matt. Uh, he's going to be out west somewhere. We're in a D4 drought. Do you recommend waiting for a significant rainfall event, soaking up the sample profile before pulling Haney tests? How long would you wait after the rain to test? So my answer there is that consistency is key, Matt. So if you have already been running Haney tests, if you have not pulled all of those in a drought, don't pull this one in a drought. And if you're going to start this year in a drought, you're going to need to pull them every year in a drought. So uh, more than likely, I would say hold off. If you get a significant rainfall event, and what I mean by significant, if we get the top six to 10 inches of soil wetted up, as soon as it is dry enough for you to get in the field without your boots growing six inches taller or without your truck getting buried or whatever it is, if it's dry enough for you to get out in the field and get a clean sample pulled, do it. And so you're okay there. So that's generally any, depending on your soil type, that's anywhere from basically five days to two weeks after that rainfall event. Yeah. Great. Great, great, great question. Great answer. Okay, Rachel, let's go to the uh, PLFA test we've got here, please. There we go. All right. And again, uh, PLFA stands for what again, Lance? Phospholipid fatty acid. Okay. All right. Let's take a let's take a look at this. We've got a total body. Yeah, sample is this? This is terrible. Is I'm it? Just, it's kidding. I'm totally kidding. Yeah, it's we're really almost good. at five thousand on the uh, the total biomass here. Yeah. Um, now. Let's talk about the functional group diversity index. What does that mean? So functional group diversity index. So when we categorize these different organisms, we put them into different quote unquote functional groups. So bacteria carry out different functions than fungi. And even under those categories, gram positive and gram negative bacteria carry out different functions. So those are functional groups. And what we're looking at here when we say diversity is we want to see how many of these organisms are there. Number one, that's your abundance. And then you've got the relative amounts compared to each other. So having just more does not increase your diversity. Yeah. Uh, having more of all of them proportionately increases your diversity. Right. So yep. that's what we mean by functional group diversity and i will tell you that of all the things on this report i'll mention this because to keep this in mind as we go through them the most important number on this report the one that carries the heaviest weight is the functional group diversity and then the total biomass and the fungi to bacteria ratio are equal weight equally weighted at number two and then we have the predator to prey ratio or the protozoan to bacteria ratio at number number three. And then the fifth one is the gram positive to gram negative. Yeah. So those are weighted to give you that overall ranking uh, on this. Okay. So 
Lance, taking a look at this report right here, we have great biomass, uh, I, I mean by total number. Yep. We have so-so functional group diversity. We have below average fungi to bacteria and we have, very, and we have poor uh, uh, predator to prey. Yep. And our gram positive to gram negative is ideal. So what do you think is happening in here to get so much to this? Some of it looks good, but yet it seems like it's out of balance too. Right. So my question, I, I would have to ask you a couple of questions before I can answer that. The first question is, when was this sample taken? Mm -hmm. um, this, this, the second question is, of course, I know you're non-irrigated, Rick. So the second question is, is what has your weather been like? In other words, are you in a D4 drought? Now, no. now before I look at that, what it looks like here, or before you answer that, what it looks like here is that you are in a very active growth cycle, right? If we look at those last two stress indicators, very active. That means logarithmic growth, rapid division of microbes. Bacteria have a tendency under ideal conditions to replicate every 20 minutes. Fungi are going to replicate very quickly, but nowhere near as fast as those bacteria will. So in these high growth phases, right, really high growth phases, that tends to skew a little bit the fungal to bacterial ratio if we're in a really high growth phase. Now, the protozoans feed on bacteria. So they are the last group of microbes to really come on. So if you think about this from organisms we can see, you've got the right environmental conditions for a giant ex uh, explosion of rabbits, right? Rabbits replicate very quickly, right? There's a reason there's a few fun, colorful sayings about rabbits. They replicate very quickly. Coyotes don't replicate as fast. So you see this huge uptick in their prey. And then later on, you see the coyotes come up and then the rabbits go down and then the predators, go, right? So you see this ebb and flow. Yep. That is common. It's not common. It's just basically law of nature. That is what happens in every system. And you reach what's called a carrying capacity. The carrying capacity of an environment. What you're doing as a land manager is putting the right things out there to increase the overall carrying capacity for biology. The biology will do the rest of the work. You're just putting the right things out there. So that's the first thing I see here above anything else. This is pretty typical of what we see um, relatively early in the growing season or when we're having a shift. So between harvest of cash crops and cover crops planted in the fall, this is what we see. Um, we see it in the spring as well, where we see the bacteria coming up and everything else is still kind of lagging behind. Yeah. We also can see this a little bit in drought situations. Um, protozoans are subaquatic. They require more moisture than bacteria do. And because they move through the soil pores and they feed on these colonies of bacteria, so if there's not moisture there in a drought, or if your soil is just so tight, there's no pore space, the protozoans go deeper in the profile or they form cysts and they go dormant. So they just sit there. They're not active. They don't show up on the test for it. 
Excellent. Excellent. But yours did show up. You do have protozoa. And I can tell you that after looking at all these samples that have PLFA and Haney analysis on the same sample, if it says zero protozoan, you could just look across their soil health score and it's going to be lower. I yeah. mean, they are, to me, a key species indicator of yeah. what's going on. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that here you folks call it protozoa to bacteria, and that's also would be called predator to prey. Correct. So, yeah. Um, so, what, what, uh, let's talk through the rest of this. So, I love over here on the left side under the functional group, you are actually telling us uh, like how much our muscular mycorrhizal there is. Uh, so you've got that marker to identify that. Correct. Correct. So and is it, that on, on that left side, Rick, I'll mention this. So a lot of people get hung up on well, what should that number be, right? What should the total bacteria be? Or what should the gram positive be? Well, that's not the answer. The answer is, is that if I look up above and I see high biomass and I see good diversity, I don't care what those individual numbers are. I don't need to know, right? That's a summary of those numbers. Yeah. So if you're scoring well, no reason to even look at it. However, if your diversity is, is down, you know, it is just, I mean, I'm talking like 1.1 and it's scoring the poor category. Now I want to go down below and say, what group is yeah. missing? But if, again, if it looks good, I don't, I don't need any more information from that, that piece. Um, Cause it's not about percentages. Percentages can be tough. We show you a percentage, but keep in mind, you can have two soils side by side and you can say, well, this one has a higher percentage of mycorrhizal in it. Well, yeah, that's because your total biomass is 1,000. So your mycorrhizal is 100 and your total biomass is 1,000 and it's 10%. But yeah. now you've got 5,000 and you've got 250 and it's only 5%. See, so the percentages are relative, right? And so that's how you want to step through this when you're looking at those. Don't focus on those numbers immediately. Focus on those big five I mentioned, total biomass, functional group diversity, and the community ratios. And then you can use the other pieces to help interpret problem areas. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent way to look at that. And again, when we get these tests, we we put all this on an Excel spreadsheet so we can track what is the, the, the trend, what's happening with the gram positive to gram negative, what's happening with predator to prey and all these things. So, and, and um, you're not, and you're not having to transcribe this information onto a spreadsheet because we provide that to you as well. Right. No. Okay. Just making yep. sure. <laughs> yep. It's already, it's already there. Yeah, you were already thinking about that. So the last thing on this, I wanted to ask you, Lance, what, what's the gain ground at the bottom? What's that mean? Oh, that's just our tagline. Okay, gain ground. Yep, region ag lab, gain ground. Awesome, love it. Yeah, don't lose ground, gain it, yeah. Rick. That's right. Gain. I mean, heck, build soil, right? Build soil, gain ground and profitability, gain, gain momentum. It just summarizes everything we're going after here for what we're trying to do with you guys and, and work with you. Just yeah, get, get momentum. Awesome. All right. 
Rachel, let's put up the last slide here, please. And guys, this is the culmination now of where you folks are headed with this regenerative certification. And now we've got the Haney test. So now, guys, I don't know if you want to get Liz involved, but talk us through and how do we get to this score of 11.88? And what does that mean? Let me take a deep breath. Nice. Okay. I'm going to give the backstory of why this is happening a little bit. And then I'm going to let Rick tell you how it's happening. Okay. Um, and then we're going to drag Liz in here and tell you really how it's happening. Um, so we, we've all been around this, talking about this for years, right? Uh, how do we track progress on the farm? Yeah. And more importantly, you know, how do we define regenerative agriculture, right? Everybody wants to throw out a definition. And, and what's crazy is I've seen some definitions that are basically as long as the Webster's Dictionary itself. And Rick and I have talked about this for, for years. And we said, look, this needs to be data driven. The, the whole idea of the Haney test is that you're letting your soil tell you something, right, about what's happening, what's going on. So a few years ago, well, I say a few, what's it been like eight years ago, <laughs> eight years ago, um, I would get asked this question and so would Rick, the same question you asked tonight, Rick, uh, what should this number be? And a lot of times people were referring to the soil health score. What should this number be? Well, we know it's regionally specific. Right. And there's different potentials. That's like me saying, Rick, what should your corn yield be? Yep. Well, hopefully the answer you give me is different than the guy, again, in eastern Colorado or western Nebraska. So I started recommending to people to go sample areas that nobody would ever sample. Fence rows, tree lines, shallow ditches, and not a lot of them. So, for example, we did this. I worked on a project in Iowa. 50 different growers involved in this project. The worst soil health score we found was 14. Wow. Now, does that mean those soils were relative? I mean, healthy? Well, relative to soils in Montana, maybe, but given their potential, no. When we ran a when we ran some of these tree line samples and some of these other things, the average soil health score was 36. Okay. Now, I had a gentleman call me who managed an organic pecan farm in New Mexico. And he got done listening to one of these types of presentations, and he heard Rick or, or I say, we really like to see the score at seven or above. That's where we're really kind of getting on the right track. And when we get above 10, it, it's really exciting. He scored a 6.9, and he was devastated by it <laughs> because he had been – 100% organic in this pecan farm, but not just organic. He was growing diverse cover crop species, mob grazing in the trees, been doing it for nine years, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, well, do me a favor. I want you to pull a sample from the absolute worst soil you can find. And I don't want you to drive more than 20 miles to do it. He said, that's easy. That's my neighbor's farm. He's also an organic pecan farmer. And I said, <laughs> Okay, well, don't tell him that you think that, but if you can get a soil sample, pull it. Yeah. And I said, now do the same thing for the best soil you think you can find. So he pulled these two samples. 
the worst soil, the, the bad soil that he pulled scored a 1.2. I have sent samples through an ashing oven at 400 degrees Celsius and scored a 1.2. This wow. was basically like ground up concrete. Wow. Okay. Guess what? The native soil that had been native since his grandfather could remember scored a 7.2. All of a sudden, 6.9 looks pretty darn good, doesn't it? And so the, the moral of the story, Rick and I started talking about this. It's like, well, look, how do we do this? So Rick and his infinite genius, and I said infinite in front of genius, he said, well, you know what? Why don't we start comparing not a farmer to his neighbor or a, uh, a group of farmers to the county or to the state or to the region or whatever, why don't we compare an individual field to itself? Not even the individual grower to themselves, an individual field. So he started looking at depth analysis where we run a zero to six inch Haney sample and a six to 12 inch Haney sample. There is nothing different on the Haney test. If you look at all these numbers reported here, they're all the exact same numbers. Mm -hmm. But Rick identified the most valuable and crucial pieces of gauging progress. Respiration, organic matter, organic nitrogen to inorganic nitrogen ratio, water-soluble carbon, percent MAC, et cetera. And basically went out and we took all these farms we knew the long-term management history of them. Some of them are collectively referred to as good or regenerative. And some of them you would look at and say, this is the absolute worst way to farm, right? 30-year continuous weed, et cetera. Started running these samples and had a high and a low and building in this in between. We knew the management history. And then Rick was able to say, okay, let's build this scoring system where we're scoring your management zone, zero to six, against your inherent soil, six to 12. If this soil's in a drought, does it affect just the six to 12 or zero to six? No. So that's the wonderful thing. It moves. If you're, Is your soil type drastically different? And, and it can be, but not in most cases, between six and six to 12, you know? So you're scoring that against yourself. So that was the idea. We talked about it for years. Um, really, it, it, it was Rick's brainchild to, to, to work the numbers and figure out how to get this score. So that is where that score comes from in a theoretical sense and, and why we were doing it this way. And we don't feel, we feel, number one, the soil should tell you whether yeah. or not it's getting better. Yeah definition of regeneration here is simply taking something you start with and making it better than where you started mm -hmm. it's not about hitting a certain threshold or being compared to some gold standard or some model um it is literally you against you in this case and in its individual fields so so rick there there's no way I mean, I can't fake this thing, right? If I'm if I'm sneaking some tillage in over the weekend that you don't know about, you're going to see it here, right? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it doesn't matter. And to, and to give you some more context of what Lance gave you is, we we had some samples from Florida recently. So the best soil health score that they had was like four. 
okay? Their zero to six was four, and their six to 12 was like 0.7. All right, it actually scored regenerative because it is. We also had some from, I don't remember where, but the soil health score in the in average between 28 and 32, they did not pass. So we made some inquiries and found out they were growing vegetables. Heavy tillage, right? Super fertile soil, really good soil. Yep. But again, this whole thing is designed to, to, to give you insight on what your management decisions are doing to your soil. That is the key. Yeah. So if you're, if you, if you pass, that means your management is regenerating your soil. If you don't pass, you might want to look at your management. And exactly. because we trust the soil in soil, we trust I think Jimmy Emmons came up with that or something, but the soil will tell us if we just let it be, you know, let it tell us. Yeah. So the six to 12 is your base. The zero to six is where you're really affecting things. And so we, we, we put those two against each other. And I think we have almost a thousand pairs of samples in the database now. And it, it, it just shocks me how well it works and, and, and because it's simple. Yeah. And, and this is an, an absolute wonderful example that you have here, Rick, because I get asked this question is, well, well, we can influence soil beyond six inches, right? Yeah. We can improve soil beyond six inches. And the answer is a definitive, absolutely. However, the rate of change is higher in the zero to six. And it's not because we want it to be or because we're measuring certain things. It's because of the laws of physics. Diffusion rate and gas exchange rate across distance is that your soil breathes. Yes, it does. But the zero to six inches and even the zero to three inches is going to breathe faster than the three to six. And it's going to breathe faster than the six to 12. And that's what drives a lot of this, right? Decomposition, nutrient cycling, organic and all these things. So it's not that we can't influence. And, and, and the reason I point that out is because I'm looking at these two samples and Rick, I'm assuming these are off your place here again. I mean, your subsoil has a soil health score of 22.55, which is arguably better than probably 95% of all the zero to six inch samples in the state of Indiana. Does that hurt you in this case? Did you not pass because you've influenced or built your subsoil? No, your topsoil is just better than that, yeah. right? And I'll yeah. guarantee you that that subsoil was not scoring that high when you started your journey. And so that's what's really cool about this is that it's, it's not, it's not a, a number on a table versus a number on a table to get this result. It's 10 numbers here, 10 numbers here, put into a dynamic calculation that is going to score you against yourself to spit out this score. Yeah completely then, independent of everybody around you. Exactly. Exactly. There, this is all on you now. This is all on, on this field. Okay. So, okay. So now maybe we need Liz in now, but so you take, okay. So first of all, if, uh, let's say this is a hundred, who decides where you pull the sample from, how many samples are being pulled? How's that number? How's that coming? 
Yeah. So, so I'm going to speak for Liz on this. She's, uh, she's busy. She's feeding people, feeding people. Um, so I'm going to speak for her on this. So let me start off by saying the term, the term on here, regenerative certification, that is Liz's term. Okay. That, that, that belongs to soil regen. That is not a region ag lab thing. Okay. Liz in her infinite wisdom, which is, infinitely higher than rick's because she married rick and that was an okay move and all that stuff but she said and ironically rick and i were working on this and when i say rick and i it's all capital over here and a lowercase i over here when we were working on this liz had no idea we were working on it and at the same time we didn't know that she was developing a verification process for regenerative uh farms Okay. This is part of her process. So this part of the process is the non-biased piece. This is the data piece. So the term regenerative certified or regenerative certification is hers. Um, we are actually, uh, uh, she puts that on these reports. Region Ag Lab does not put that on the reports. That is something she adds as part of her survey. So with that being said, she designs the sampling protocol and on general or in general, you're looking at pulling a, a set, a set, a, a zero to six and a six to 12 at minimum on a per 100 acre basis. Okay. And those hundred acres need to be in the same management type and it needs to be different, uh, needs to be done, um, on the same basic management scheme. So in other words, if you're gonna group hundred acres, it's gotta be in the same crop type and it's gotta be under the same management. You can't plant cover crops on 20 of those hundred acres and then put it all together. So, yeah. um, and, and, by, and by and large, that's done with independent samplers. Yep. The numbers that come through this lab, we don't have a clue who they're from. Yeah. Right? yeah. So there's no bias involved because we don't understand who the samples are all we know is they're zero to six six to twelve we score them and now those scores go yeah yeah there's so yeah this part of the process like rick when we got this sample from from liz you are a number so the grower that's up there at the top right that's blank you you've removed that but that is a number mm -hmm. and i don't know who the grower is i don't know where the field is that the lab doesn't know any of that. So that's one layer of protection in this. That's the second layer is those independent soil samplers. Now those independent soil samplers can be, uh, you know, an agronomist, an independent soil sampling company, you know, that are designed just to do that, or even somebody like an extension agent. Um, we just, just adding that layer of protection in there that, that the sample integrity is good. And, and then the lab bias is removed by not knowing who, who they belong to. Right. Well, and then hopefully what we're what we're after here is that, hey, the farmer gets information that helps him or her understand what direction they're heading in. And if you don't pass, doesn't mean it's bad. Right. It means you're, you're still on the here's where you are on the journey. Yeah. And so it's not it's not a good or bad thing. Secondly, we would like to see the farmer or rancher get more value for their product based on this system. We want to see them to get a premium price for their products based on this system. Think about the organic system, organic certified. 
which is a bunch of nonsense. Mm-hmm. That's a bunch of checks on a piece of paper. Yep. This is beyond organic. This is better than organic. And I hope before I die that I see this is regeneratively grown. Here's the verification. Here's the certification. Yeah. For this farmer, for the, you know, that's what we want. We we want farmers to actually get paid for the quality and the value they provide. And this is a part of that process. Yeah. And, and Rick, you know this better than anybody as, as a regenerative organic farmer. Is it, in order to carry that organic certification, right, there's a lot of hoops you have to jump. And, and as long as you're willing to do all those things, you can get that certification. With this, we're not telling somebody that, hey, in order to be regenerative verified through as Liz, and I'm speaking for Liz, in order to be regenerative verified, we're not telling you you have to integrate livestock and you yeah. have to plant cover crops or you can never, ever till ever again. The difference is, is that you make the choices you want to make as a manager, as your owner operator, you make those choices. The soil test is going to tell us the ramifications of your choices, good or bad. That's it. You have the freedom to do whatever it is you want to do or need to do. And, and I'll be honest, there's, there's events that happen, right. That are out of our control. So somebody has been no till for seven years or, or they've never used herbicide in six years. And then all of a sudden they have a disaster and they really think, Hey, I gotta, I, I gotta do something drastic. Right. Well, if you're organic, you make that one decision, you just wipe that out. Right. But with this, that's what we call an acute stress. And you might take a little bit of a dip. Yeah. But if you're passing at, at a 12, you're going to be all right. And your score goes down to a nine because you had to do something drastic. And then the next year it rebounds to 11. You, you're, you passed at nine, you pass at 11, you pass at 12. And it's not, you don't have to improve on this number today to pass next year. It's not about that. It's telling you what you're doing is working. Keep doing what you're doing, and that score will get better. But even if you're in a drought and that score stays the same or drops, that doesn't mean you lose your certification. Yeah. According to the way Liz has that set up. I mean, that's what I think is really neat about it. And the other fun part is just a zero to six Haney test will give you a soil health score, and that's great, right? This is more in depth. Yeah. Literally. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's more... It's more precise. Yeah, I love this. And and I also like the fact of what you just said, Lance. I mean, there are situations out here where, I mean, what we're trying to do on this farm is it, we've taken everything away. Well, sometimes you have, I mean, when you get a noxious wheat like Canada the Thistle, you've got to take care of that. You cannot let that go crazy. So we had to do yeah. some damage. And you shouldn't be punished for that. Right. Yeah. That's right. Now, okay, so let's say that we've got the certification and does this expire? I mean, do we have to redo this again next year to make then we get certified again? Is that how this works? Yeah, the way I understand it is that in order to carry, so let me let me step back. Any producer can do this part of this. They can send me anybody Rick, you could pull these samples yourself. If they're yeah. just for you, the only person you're cheating is yourself if you don't pull them right, right? Yeah. And we'll run these calculations and provide those to you. They're for you. 
you know, get this number and we call that region ag lab certified. In other words, region ag lab is certifying that test to say, this is the process we ran. This is what you're getting. Yeah. You can do that anytime for any reason, as often or as little as you want. For Liz's program, it's a two-step process. You have to do this part and it has to be independent third party. It has to be done on an annual basis or within a cropping cycle. So for people that are double cropping, you would be doing it per crop. So this, because what you're really verifying is the crop at the end. Right. So you would say regenerative verified, meaning this crop has been verified as regenerative. And this is just the first part of that process. Yeah. The second part then is verifying that you are doing at least one it can be only one, but at least one of the soil health principles. Yeah. You can be 100% no-till, and that's it. And doing everything else conventionally. And if you pass this, that's the big if. If you pass this, then you can still be regenerative verified. Yeah. And for animal products or any kind of those things, that's regeneratively grown. Same process, but two different labels. And that's done on a, either per year or per cropping cycle basis. I love it. I absolutely love it. We have we have a late question here. How is Liz's regenerative certified different from Gabe's uh, regenified? Oh, I'll take that one. Uh, you know, it's really very not similar. Liz's is way better. Yeah. Good enough. Good enough. I get it. I hope he heard. I hope he hears that. Hey, hey, guys, we've been going. For... I'm just kidding. I don't even, you know, they're different. Study them. This is my advice. Study how they do it. Study how this is done. And you choose. Yeah. yeah. And I'm going to say, and I'm going to say this because this is important. Rick, Rick developed this equation to do this. This is the equation is property of region agri. Region Ag Lab will run soil samples for anybody who wants those run and will continue to do so as long as you pay your bill, Rick. Um, so we'll do that. So this is not, we work with other people beyond, we work with Gabe and Regenified, but we work with countless others that are attempting to do something similar in this landscape. And I'll be honest with you, I applaud every one of them all. Um, but those are, you know, we are independent from those groups. We work with every one of those groups that want to work with us. And so I just point that out is that I'm sitting here talking about this. I'm, I'm sharing what Liz's background and what her process is, but we're not doing this because Liz is doing this. We're doing this because this is something we've been talking about before anybody was even talking about regenerative ag, to be honest. Yeah. Trying yeah. to figure out how to let the soils provide feedback to the grower. And the final thing I'll say on that is that soil labs are always backwards flowing. You pull a soil sample, you send it to the lab, we send the data backwards to you, right? It might go through a dealer or an agronomist, but it goes backwards. Right. So you can make decisions, right? What we're hoping with this is that anybody 
who wants to adopt this type of process or similar process now with with the producer's permission this data can go forward so the individual components of the haney test that's for you that's for the producer to help make management decisions the summary score of this is simply to go to general mills anheuser-busch whoever right and they say hey we looked at the process. We like the process. It makes sense to us. Whatever that process is and whoever that process is, we like it. We're going to seek out growers that can provide us with this type of information. And that we're trying to add that premium on to what you're doing. Because yeah. it's not just about, we can justify this just from a money saving standpoint on fertility. But man, if you can get paid an extra 50 cents a bushel on wheat, in Kansas because it's going into Anheuser-Busch for a certain reason or get paid on barley in South Dakota because it's going to General Mills. Isn't that a win on win? Yeah. And, yeah. and but, but none of these people at those, none of, no offense to any of those people, but the sustainability officers for Nestle and Land O'Lakes and whoever, they don't have any better definition of regenerative ag than I and, and mine's not really good. So that's why we're letting the soil define it for us. Awesome. Thank God we don't have time to talk about the whole carbon thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, we don't want to talk about carbon, right? Yeah, we'll uh, leave we have we have that too, but that, that's another time. <laughs> That'll be another episode. A new podcast. That's a new podcast. That's another episode. Hey guys, wow. You you blew us away. I love where you're headed with this, Rick. Thank you. I'm glad you you're you're out of USDA. You've unleashed your your mind is the Kraken. The Kraken. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So Lance, thank you. Rick, yeah. thank you. Yeah, this has been awesome. Lance, you busted your butt to get down there to do this live. Thank you so much. Very welcome. Thanks for this having is, us. This has been guys, I don't you don't read this has been tremendous information. This talk walked us through everything. So thank you so much. And you guys have a beer for me tonight and, and thank you so much. All right. You got it. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye.